pray for us before we begin. Father God, I pray that you would uh, be with us, that you would open our, our minds and our ears, um, give us uh, clarity as we seek to understand what you have to say to us today in this passage. In Christ's name, amen. So we just read a really dramatic back and forth that has a lot of uh, front stage, backstage stuff going on where there is a lot of division and conflict. This chapter begins a new episode in John's narrative. So we just ended up talking about um, Jesus as this new Moses, this new Exodus giving the bread of life. And in this new episode that kind of continues through chapter 8, uh, it centers around the questions of Jesus's identity. You, you saw this come up in the reading a lot. What, who is this guy? Where is he from? Um, and it, so it's that identity, and then it centers around the conflict that takes place between Jesus and all these various groups of people, and even the conflict within the groups where there's division. You saw there's division in the reaction. So in the foreground, Jesus is having this conversation with the crowd, with the police who come to arrest him and end up not arresting him, and with some of the Jewish leaders, right? And in the background, we saw the Pharisees talking and scheming amongst themselves, trying to figure out how they should arrest him. And then when the police came back and hadn't arrested him, they're like, what are you doing? We sent you to arrest the guy. What happened? And they're like, he's pretty convincing. I don't know. Uh, he, he just talked us out of it. Um, it's kind of what I do when I get pulled over, right? You just talk him out of it. And so uh, in every group, we see this divided response to Jesus, don't we? Um, so throughout this chapter, then that tension and that conflict between Jesus and the various groups begins to mount. People begin to learn more clearly what Jesus is teaching, and the reaction is strong. So I have two slides where I want to actually overview the chapter as we just read it. I know we just read the whole thing, but because it's so much, I want to like distill it down and get us uh, into um, the narrative. So the first one here, you see there's the front stage and there's backstage. I'm sorry, the text is actually a little too small. Um, there's a slide right before that one. Here we are. So first, on the left, can anyone read that? Okay. On the left, I'll just go through it. On the left, we're in the foreground. So this is what everything that's happening kind of in the foreground. And on the right is in the background. So what starts out as a conversation between Jesus, should I go up? Should I not go up to the feast? He says, I'm not going to go up at the same time as you. I'm going to go secretly. So he goes secretly. And in the background, we see the crowd is then murmuring amongst themselves saying, who is this guy? Is he good? Is he not good? Okay, then at the middle of the feast, so that was at the start of the feast, at the middle of the feast is when all the juicy commentary starts coming. He starts teaching, they start questioning him, there's a reaction, there's a, 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 some people are accepting him, some are not accepting him, and then it goes forward from there. Um, and then in the background, again, next, back to that, the other slide. In the background, again, the Pharisees hear that there's divisions and, and uh, uh, um, people... Um, accepting what Jesus is saying, and they get worked up, and so they send policemen to go arrest him. And then he talks the policemen down. And then on the last day of the feast, he says, come to me and get living water. And then we go back to the background, and we see the policemen and the Pharisees talk, and there's division. And they're like, why didn't you arrest him? And Nicodemus says, we should give him a fair hearing. And they say, no, you need to be quiet because that's wrong. So you see how there's like this back, and there's this forth, and um, there is this a divided reaction to Jesus. So Jesus' signs and his teachings were not merely good deeds and wise words with no cost. 
right? He didn't just go feed people and say, like, you should be nice to your enemies, and, and, and there was no cost to that. They were upsetting words, literally. In the, in the literal sense of the word, they upset people's emotions and expectations, both for the good and for the bad. They upended societal and religious norms and expectations. They stirred up the social climate when he was in town. When he was in town, it was a big deal. That's why everyone's trying to look for him, and they're all talking about him in the crowd. Jesus was popular with his crew, right? Like he had his following, but he was very much not liked by those who were not his crew. You see that? Those who didn't believe in him. There's people at every level of society that did not believe in what Jesus was doing or saying and considered him a disruption and a deceiver of the people. Not just like mostly good but wrong about being the son of God thing. No, a deceiver of the people who got killed for it. Right? The reaction was not to say that he had nice teaching. It was just a good, wise man. What he said about himself drove a sword between the people and the leaders and even his own family at the beginning of the chapter. You see that? He said this in Matthew 10, 34. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to, to, to um, divide a man against his father and, and a uh, daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those even of his own household. And this is true even of Jesus, that his relatives don't believe in him at the beginning. It was clear that his message would call, cause divergent reactions. And in this story, those divergent views in the various people groups are around two questions. Is he good? And is he telling the truth? Is he good? And is he telling the truth? And so that's what he's being grilled on. And that's what he has to defend. So here's the upshot. Either he's a good man who is teaching the truth, or he is a deceiver. You catch that? There's not like this middle ground where like he's kind of lying, but he's still good. No, he is either telling the truth and good, or he's a deceiver. So let's look at how the people first raise this question around Jesus, and then we'll look at Jesus' response and how he supports his identity. Okay? So first, how do people raise the question? So if we start with the opening scene, it tells us that Jesus' own human relatives pressed him to go up to a more prominent place, to Jerusalem, out of the countryside. He wants to go to the big city with the big lights. Um, he was told to get out of the countryside so that he could be heard by more people. Right? Right there in verse 4. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Why would you do everything you're doing in secret? Which is funny because Jesus later says, I did nothing in secret. But... They clearly don't believe in what he's doing. Uh, they don't think he's done the miracles they've heard about. Um, they say, show yourself to the world. Prove it. Jesus' methods and his motives are questioned by his own family, right there in the foreground of the narrative, right? And then when Jesus finally shows up in Jerusalem, people are murmuring among themselves. That, that word murmuring, it's like a bunch of birds chattering. And it's back and forth, and there's like a buzz of, of a beehive with opinions thrown in every direction. And in verse 12, it says, there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. You see that? Divergent views. Why would the reactions be so divergent? Why so extreme? 
So let's, let's think about this. If I came over to your house, let's have an example here in our own lives. If I came over to your house and I said, I read this really good book on parenting techniques, right? Parenting techniques and philosophies can be very divisive issues. People get, have really strong reactions about them, right? But let's say I come over to your house and I offer a different view on how to parent than something you've been using. And I say, here's this book that I read on it, right? It's another helpful way of thinking, of training and discipling your children. That, uh, you might have a conversation with me about that, right? You might say, hey, tell me about it. And we talk about it. And you're like, oh, we don't really do that. But like, I'm open to talking about that. Um, if you find that that method eventually doesn't work for you, you and I might say that we have our differences, right? And that's okay. And our households can function a little differently. We can both be Christians. We can both be good parents, right? Okay. But if I came over to your house and I grabbed your child and I said, I'm your dad. Is that different? Is that a difference of opinion about parenting technique? No. That's a difference of identity and of source and of who you belong to. So hey, little kid, I'm really your dad. And to live correctly, you actually need to leave this house and come live with me. And hey, don't worry about it. It's been, it's been good. They've, kept, they've taken care of you up till now. But I'm telling you, I'm here to fulfill the role that they've played in your life because I'm actually your dad. And this is how you need to be raised from now on, is under my roof, under my, the way that I'm telling you, you take my name. Would that cause a different reaction? Okay, right? So do you see that you can't be like, either he's telling the truth and he's coming back to reclaim his long-lost son, or he's insane. He's, you know, yes, this is, this is you see this, C.S. Lewis talks about this trilemma of he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. This is why. Jesus shows up and he literally tells people, this God we have worshipped, I am his only son, and I am speaking on his behalf as one who is equal with him and united to him. These ways Moses gave us to approach him and these laws all actually pointed to me. They were good in their time, but they pointed to me, and so there was, a, there was coming a fundamental change in the way that you must relate to God by faith alone in me, through him. He's not merely setting up a new way of washing hands, for instance, before meals. He has said, my blood will wash your soul. He's not merely designating a new animal to be sacrificed for Passover. Instead of the sheep, you get a platypus or something crazy. No, he's saying, I am the Passover lamb. I fulfill it. He's not pointed out a new mountain to build a temple on. He's saying, I'm the temple, and you worship God through me in spirit and in truth. Do you see do you see this? If he's false, if this is false, he's either out of his blinking mind and delusional or intentionally lying for power. In both cases, he would be misleading the people. This is why they react this way. And by the way, he still gets this reaction, doesn't he? If you don't think he's, he's, he's right, he can't, he can't just be good but wrong. No, he's, he's, he's misleading by what he's claiming. But if he's telling the truth, then he is truly Lord. And everything has come to its fulfillment 
in him. What we learn from this is in order for Jesus to be good, he has to be true. His goodness and his truth are bound up together. He can't be wrong and good. He has to be right if he's going to be good. The truthfulness of the claims of Jesus are required for him to be good. If his teaching is false, he's not good and, in fact, evil because it's blasphemy and he deserves to die if he's lying, which is why he was killed, by the way. So, if that's the dilemma in front of us, if that, if that you know, strong reaction based on whether he's right or wrong is at stake, what does Jesus do to answer the dilemma? How does Jesus demonstrate that he is both good and true? Let's walk through it. First, Jesus proves that he is good with his humble character. With this humble character. Look what it says in verse 16 to 18. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. See what he's doing here? He's saying, if it's all from me, if I'm the source, and it's my authority, then if something is true, then I get the credit. But if the source is someone else, and I am, I am relaying that teaching to you, then the glory for that truth goes to the one from whom it came. Back to the parenting book. For instance, if I wrote a parenting book and I recommend it to you, there's a conflict of interest, isn't there? And you would say, I don't know if I should read your book. You're just telling me because you want me to spend money and you get the money. It could actually be good, but you still have that like, conflict of interest there where it's like you're profiting off of convincing me whether this is good or not. Whereas, if I didn't write the book, but I'm relaying something that someone else wrote and I'm recommending it, I don't profit I don't have any stake in this, then my conflict of interest, at least in that, in that sense, is not there. And so you have more of a reason to trust me. So Jesus is saying, you have more of a reason to trust him because what he's relaying to you is from the Father. It's not for his own glory. He's pointing the glory back to the Father. His humility. It's the same reason Jesus didn't want to initially go up to the feast in view of everyone. It wasn't his time to be crucified yet. See, it says they wanted to make him king by force in the earlier chapter. But he wasn't ready to be king. Why? He had to go through the cross. He had to go through the cross. He wasn't seeking popular notoriety. He constantly drove people away by his hard teaching. He constantly got away from the crowd. He constantly made it difficult to be popular. Yet he was such an enigma that he still was popular. Jesus did not want to be made king by mob popularity. He knew he had to go to the cross. And this is a lesson for us, by the way. For us to be found good and true, we also need to choose the way of humility. Augustine gives comments on it like this. Augustine says, Jesus wanted to lead the way to that height of glory through humility, to pave a way to that lofty state through humility. They were focused on where they were going, but didn't see how to get there. That's the, that's the brothers. The native land of heaven is indeed lofty, but the way is lowly. The life of Christ is the native land, but the death of Christ is the way. The dwelling of Christ is the native land, but the suffering of Christ is the way. The dwelling of Christ is the native land, 
Sorry, what native land are you seeking if you reject the way? If you reject the way of Christ, how do you know you're going to the, the place that Christ led to? So humility was the way he chose. It wasn't about him, it was about the Father. The second thing Jesus did was he rooted his identity in God the Father as his source. God the Father was his source. This is important because one of the reasons for doubting Jesus was they brought questions up about his origin, right? In verse 27, they said, we know where this man comes from. We know he's from Nazareth. We know Mary. We know Joseph. We know this guy's story. Uh, No one will know where the Messiah comes from. And then they contradict this in verses 41 to 42 by saying, um, is the Christ... uh, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem? So which is it? Is it from nowhere or is it from Bethlehem? They don't know. They're confused. The irony here is that it actually is from Bethlehem and they don't know that he's from Bethlehem. He was born there and then he went back, right? This is why Matthew and Luke let us know and Luke goes to great pains, not pains, but gives great detail to say at the census, he went to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy and then went back to Nazareth. They not only contradict themselves, but they ironically tell us the point. So in the first section, he says his teaching comes from the Father, and he teaches what he has heard. In the next section, he ups the ante by saying that not only is he speaking what he hears and giving glory back to to the Father, but he is actually from the Father. He's actually from the Father. This is important because he who sent me is true. He reflects the character of the one who sent him. Not only was Christ sent by the Father, but then he will return to the Father after his mission on on, on the earth. In verse 33, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Because the Son's source is the Father, his character is good and true. A tree will be known by its fruit. If I pick an apple off a tree, what kind of a tree is it? An apple tree. If I pick an, I've done this before. If you pick an orange off a tree, what kind of a tree is it? Okay, a tree will be known by its fruit. If he's doing good works, if he's making a whole bo- a man's body, a man's whole body whole and, and, and well, how can he be from Satan? When the Christ appears, the, the, main, the main characters say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? His works have been good. It reflects that he has a good origin. And then they also say, no one ever spoke like this man. His teaching is good. He's wise. How could he come from an unwise or, or false origin? The answer is because he is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. The bottom line takeaway is this. In Christ's ministry, we see that a, he is a humble man who is not glorifying himself, but is seeking the glory of the Father. And in addition to this, his words And his deeds, his teaching, his miracles, even he himself are from the Father and are sourced in God the Father. Just like we talked about several weeks ago. Lastly, he does not just simply convey the teachings of God like some other prophet, but he is himself sent from God as the Son of God and will go back to the Father. Therefore, here's the upshot. To receive Jesus is to receive God. 
As it says in Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The reception and the glory of the Father is directly tied to the reception and the glory of the Son. Therefore, to reject anything Jesus says about himself, about you, about the world, about the reality of God, is to reject Father because their teaching is one. To deny the identity of Jesus as he states it is to deny the validity of his entire ministry and authority because it means he's not actually from God, but he's a liar and a deceiver and a blasphemer. So, why does it matter? At the center of this entire passage is the heart. On the last day of the, of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you feel thirsty? Do you have needs in your life? Do you have dissatisfaction in your life? Do you have unmet expectations in your life? Do you have sadness in your life? Do you have lack anywhere in your life? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, Feast of Booths, the people of Israel live in uh, temporary shelters for a whole week to remember the time that they were in the wilderness and lived in temporary shelters through the wilderness and God provided for them. And what's one of the things that God provided for them? Water. Provided for them water in the wilderness. Moses smacked a rock, and it said, ow, and squirted out water, and they drank the water. And he provided for them in the wilderness. And so during this festival, they would take water from the pool of Siloam, the lowest point in the city, and they would take it up to the, to the temple, and they would pour it out in the basin by the altar, remembering that God provides, during this time of traveling in the wilderness, God provides water. Jesus said, I will give you water. And it says that this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were about to receive. When? The spirit was not yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In John's gospel, Jesus only speaks about his glory with reference to the cross. So, when he goes to the cross, he calls it his time of hour. And he says, Father, glorify me in this hour. Once Jesus has been glorified, then it will be the time of the Spirit. So the water is none other than the Spirit that Jesus gives from his side at the cross. The water and the blood come from his side as he gives over the Spirit to the disciple. The rich imagery of the gospel up to now is meant to prepare us to see the water. Just as Moses smacked the rock in the wilderness and water came out for the people of Israel, so Jesus hung on the cross at his time of glory and was pierced in the side and water and blood flowed out to give life to the world. Jesus fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles by being the rock who gives water for life, but not just for the body, for the soul. And what's more, that water becomes in you a spring because it is the Spirit who dwells within you and then overflows to eternal life and you never run out. So do you have thirst? Do you have a place of lack? It matters that Jesus is telling the truth and he's not crazy 
because only the truth-telling good Son of God can be the one who gives you an ever-flowing stream of water for your soul for all eternity. Otherwise, he has no power to do any of that, and we're wasting our time. It's just that important that he's telling the truth. Otherwise, we should move on. But thanks be to God, he's true. And he's good. And he offers you eternal life, an eternal fountain of water that will fulfill every thirst in your life if you believe in him. Just as he rescued the Israelites from Egypt, he rescues us from slavery to sin and Satan. Just as he saved them through the Red Sea, he saves us through baptism. Just as they traveled through the wilderness, we travel through the wilderness of this world in this life. Just as the, water was, the, the rock was struck for water, so his side was struck for water and the salvation of the world. Just as that water quenched their thirst, so that water of the Holy Spirit will quench our thirst to eternal life. And just as they entered the promised land, we too one day will enter the kingdom of God when he comes again to establish it on the earth. We confess and believe as Christ's people on earth that he is the Son of God, sent by the Father, and that he can give us eternal life by his Holy Spirit. When he was struck, he gave forth water for our souls. And we now come to drink of it. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit.